Well, we're continuing our series on, on what it means to do life together and the importance of, of what that means. And we've been really trying to, to stretch the envelope every week to get us to understand the significance of what it meant when the, when the early church launched itself and what it was that made the early church so significant in the power that it had to where they actually added to the number of the body of believers daily in the thousands of what we could see. And a lot of people will say that uh, the word care uh, is a word that maybe we don't uh, use properly. I think, uh, you know, sometimes we take the word care and, and, and express that out a little bit, and depending upon how we use that, may have some different uh, implications. I mean, like after church today, I know the, the one question on your mind is, where do you want to go to lunch? And sometimes our response will be, well, I don't care. Or we might say, you know, uh, when we go through the drive-thru, we're going to supersize that and uh, I don't care, or, or we might just say, hey, you wanna to go to the mall or just stay home today? I don't care. So care is one of those English words that we, we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to, or, or more importantly, we don't value it like we should. The word care actually comes from the Greek word kara, and kara means to, to open our hearts to, to, to come alongside one who's in need of, of our love and support. It means to grieve with them, walk with them, uh, pour out our life upon them. So, so if we take a look at care, care in, the, in that particular sense, we find out that uh, it has a, a much different meaning. Sometimes we'll take care and we'll say that, that it means that we're going to help somebody who's less fortunate than us or someone who needs something or, or I have two of and they have one, so I care about that, I wanna transact that to give them something. But really, from the church's point of view and from a relational point of view, uh, God has a bigger, bigger plan with that word care, and it actually means to come together in a, in a powerful way in a smaller group of people to where we can see a significant impact of what our life can be. We've been walking through the Acts 2 church. We've been focusing on those uh, key verses in 2, 42 to 46. We've been studying what is it that brought the people of God together, but more importantly, what was it that empowered them? And we, we see that there's a couple of things that are in common. They come together for the apostles' teaching, which means that they're reading and they're studying scripture. They're, they're uh, surrendering their things that they have to make sure that if someone's without, that there's a need that is met, that they give that they, that they have joyful and giving hearts. We know that they're meeting in homes and they're breaking bread and they're, they're doing lots of things and, and drawing closer to God. And, and, and that's the way that we begin to explore and understand the importance of the great commandment, which is to love God with everything that there is about us, but also to turn and to love our neighbors ourselves. And that's how community is built. You know, our Wesleyan heritage is built upon that. John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodist movement, Wesley was an Anglican priest over in the Church of England, and he would say to folks, go to your churches on Sunday, uh, hear the word proclaimed, uh, have the sacrament administered, get close to God in the midst of the sacrament of communion and through the baptisms. But during the week, Wesley said, was it's time for you to get smaller. It's time for you to not be in such a large mass of people, but to grow closer together in smaller groups. Uh, bands and cells is what he called them. So, so we know even from our own heritage, a lot is built upon that. And the significant reason why Wesley said to do that was, he said that whenever we begin to develop that relationship with one another that is so deep and so trusting that we can be real with each other without condemnation, without judgment, without being cast aside, Wesley said when we could look each other in the eye one-on-one -on -one and ask this question, how well is your soul that we can answer it with humility and, and honesty and understanding. 
And that by asking someone, how well is your soul, that the answer that you're not getting is that one where we just kind of blow it off, but where we open ourselves up and say, here is where my soul is today. And people will come and provide care around them. Care is also translated to the word accountability. And accountability is the big piece of, of where, where we are today in the sense of, of establishing groups of people who can be accountable to one another. The, the writer of the Proverbs says that, that iron sharpens iron, that when we work together and when one man sharpens another in a sense that you come together, or one woman, that when we talk and we share, that we begin to sharpen ourselves that comes out of that. And I, and I find out that as I, as I talk with people and as I talk to many of you on your journey of faith, what, what comes to a great conclusion for me is you make it very well known to me that you want to pursue the path to holiness. Now, holiness does not mean that, that, that we have to you know, be goody two-shoes and all those things. We're not, we're not rule keepers, but what holiness means is that, that everything that there is about our life, we want it to be something that brings love and joy and pleasure into the sight of God. And as we pursue that tract of holiness, one of the things we quickly find out is that it's not such an easy thing to do, is it? We can strive to be holy. We can want to walk the path with God. We can uh, attest to those things. We can live the life that Christ has created in us. But all of a sudden, life constantly throws things our way, doesn't it? It throws things in our way that knocks us off balance. It takes us off the road and we become confused or hurt or harmed or broken and all of a sudden we find ourselves off the path. But, but part of our role together in life is to be the encouragers, to help each other to get on that path and to walk the path when we mostly can. Here's a great uh, example, the Samaritan woman. We find out uh, she comes to Jacob's well in the afternoon, which is an awkward time. It's not a time that, that most people would have come to the well. In fact, when Jewish women came to the well of Jacob to draw their water, it was likely early in the morning when it was cool because they were carrying these large vats of water back uh, to their homes for their families. But the Samaritan woman, and we learn in, in, in the history that, that Samaritans and people of, of, of Judaism, uh, that they were not very friendly to each other because the Jews saw the Samaritans as people that, that were idol worshipers and people that didn't uh, abide by the codes of the law, so to speak, of the prophets. So they were enemies. But there was something significant about this woman that uh, not only was she uh, not wanting to be around other Jewish people, but she was not even wanting to be around people of her own community. She was doing life alone. And we find out in the story that she comes to Jacob's well and she's there by herself. But who shows up? Jesus is there. God in the flesh, and God begins to have this conversation with this woman, and he begins to share with her through the life of, of himself as Jesus in the world, he begins to share with her that, that she needs to open her eyes and let her heart be illumined in the presence of the person that she is with, that he is living water, that he will give a drink to her that will not thirst, but shall give her everlasting life. And her life has changed, and, and, and through that experience of one-on-one -on -one or, or a small group experience, we see Jesus ministering to this woman. And in the midst of that, he heals her brokenness. He brings restoration to her life and he puts her back on the path. He loved her enough to keep her and to walk with her and to love her and encourage her. Well, accountability is, is one of the, the huge things that is so important for all of us. And I think deep down, uh, most of us want accountability in our life. We want to live the right life. And we want to know that, that whenever we get off that path that, that leads us down to, 
to a way that is destructive to ourselves or to others, we wanna know that we can have somebody who will help bring that back to perspective for us. Someone who can nudge us, who can encourage us, who can love us enough to help us to see where we're going wrong. And this morning, I'm gonna to read to you the story of King David. And, and David uh, uh, was, a, was a powerful person, king. He could do anything that he wanted. And we're gonna find out here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, some egregious things that happened in David's life. And David was a man that was described as after God's own heart. And yet we find out a man after God's own heart even had some complex things happening to him. And the question was gonna be, who was gonna stand up and who was gonna love David enough to get him back on the path? So here's the story in chapter 11. One late afternoon, David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace. And from his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was stunningly beautiful. And David sent to ask about her and was told, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? So she's married to Uriah. And David sent his agents to get her. And after she arrived, he went to bed with her. And this occurred during the time of purification following her period, which meant that this was the time of her ovulation. She then returned home and before long, she realized she was pregnant. And later she sent word to David, I'm pregnant. Now think about this, you know, the king, he has everything at his whims and call. He sees a, a beautiful woman and he begins to think in his mind about lusting and he commits adultery and he, he ends up having her husband killed so that he can have her. And all of a sudden now she's pregnant. So, so David is not surrounded by anyone who can be an accountability partner, why? Because a lot of folks are afraid of David. Think about it, all the power the king has. And at moment's notice, he can have their life snuffed out. So David has no accountability partners. But what we learn here is about the grace and the love of God, that God loves David so much that he sends an individual into the presence of the king to help him with accountability. I'm gonna pick up in verse 12. But God was not at all pleased with David and what he had done, and he sent Nathan to David. And Nathan said to him, there are two men in the same city, one rich and the other poor. In the ancient world, they told a lot of stories to help create a word picture, and that's what Nathan's doing to the king. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep and herds of cattle, and the poor man had nothing but one little female lamb, which he had bought and raised. It grew up with him and his children as a member of the family. Listen to how they treated this little female lamb. It ate off the plates and they drank from their cup and they slept in the beds of, of the family. It was like a daughter to him. And one day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man. He was too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitor. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal to set before his guest. And David exploded in anger. And as surely as God lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must repay for the lamb four times over his crime and his stinginess. Now listen to what happens here. Nathan says to David, you're the man. And here's what God, the God of Israel, has to say to you. I made you king over Israel. I freed you from the fist of Saul. I gave you your master's daughter and your wives to have and to hold. I gave you both Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I'd gladly have thrown in much more. So why have you treated the word of God with brazen contempt, doing this great evil? 
You murdered Uriah the Hittite, took his wife as your wife. Worse, you killed him with an Ammonite sword. And now because you treated God with such contempt and took Uriah the Hittite's wife as your wife, killing and murder will continue to plague your family. You know, so we're seeing some, some really horrible things that are happening here. And as long as David is holding on to this as the life in which he's living, which is totally against what God wants in his life, God is saying there will never be any peace in your household, that you'll always be looking for something and someone in the midst of, of your life. But God loves David enough that he sends he sends Nathan there, and Nathan takes a chance. Nathan has such great love and affinity for his king that he's willing to risk even his friendship, let alone his own life, to basically tell the king the truth. And the question this morning is, who are the people that you and I have in our lives that we can have tell us the truth as, as as bad as it might be or as tough as it might be? Who are the people that can look us in the eyes and ask us, how well is your soul? and help us to the point of being able to change and transform our life. That's the kind of community that God wants to build, and that's the kind of community that God demonstrates through the Scripture as we see this. So coming together in smaller groups of people, when we be able to develop that relationship where we can develop trust and acceptance and understanding, being able to confess our sins with one another, that's a powerful piece that we see in the life of discipleship. Paul writes this. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch for yourself or you'll be also tempted. Carry each other's burdens and this way fulfill the law of Christ. Did you hear that? Carry one another's burdens. Think about what that means when you carry something. You load it in a big bag or something and you strap it on your back. And if that is really heavy what you're doing, doesn't it weight you down? but you're able to move forward and it demonstrates the love that you have for somebody. That you're willing to carry their pain, you're willing to carry their suffering, you're willing to carry their sin in some sense to help them to get back on the path with God. To carry the burden because that is the law of Christ. The writer of Hebrews, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of son, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another, leading one another, helping each other to see the greater goal. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Randy Frazee is a, is a pastor and a wonderful writer. And he wrote in his book, uh, The Connecting Church, he wrote this quote. He said, the experience of authentic community is one of the purposes that God intends to be fulfilled by the church. The writings of Scripture lead one to conclude that God intends the church not to be one more bolt on the wheel of activity in our lives, but the very hub at the center of your life. Sometimes you get a little, uh, you get a little pushy with the church. Well, the church is kind of horning in on my life. Or what do you mean, there's another church activity for the kids tonight? When are we going to have this? Or when are we going to do that? Or, or man, i got to go to church again. Well, we've got to change our headset on that. The church's role is not to be the burden in your life. The church's role is to be the hub, that Christ is the church. And out of that, Christ wants to be the center of our life. So when we come together and when we are together as an assembly or in smaller groups, it's not to add one more thing to an overly busy life. It's to actually be life with you and to become purpose for your life 
as we move ahead. It says in Acts 2.42 that, that the believers continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and with other disciples. How do we continue steadfastly? Because we adopt that kind of discipline with each other. And we continue to pursue that. It's a crucial point. It speaks to the real passion that these Christians had for the word of God. It speaks to the, the love that they had for one another. It, it, it comes to conclude their desire to want to do life together, to be in community. And they didn't have a casual attitude about it. They loved getting into the word of God. They, they uh, favored being able to pray for one another with the joys in their life as well as the sorrows. They were significant. They were firm and fixed and settled and established in their commitment. And the question becomes, will we? The early church established the norm. And the 21st century church has to ask itself, will we be as faithful and as committed as the early church? And will we strive to do that? But so often what happens is that so many Christians, they, 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 they pursue their spiritual life or we can pursue our spiritual life like we might with the battle of the bulge. We say, okay, I wanna get healthy. I wanna get in shape. I'm gonna uh, uh, go to a gym. I'm gonna go to the Y or whatever the case is. We see all those newfangled machines. We get on them. We start watching what we eat. We're like sweating and everything else. And a couple weeks into it, nothing's stopping us. We're fully committed. But then we start looking and, and all of a sudden the measuring tape isn't getting small enough fast enough or that we're still not at the weight size that we want to be, or, or the clothes aren't fitting properly, and we become discouraged. And next thing you know, we start fitting other things in our life other than the priority that we establish to get physically fit. And that's the way we pursue our spiritual life sometimes. We get excited, we wanna pursue it, I'm all in, I wanna be a child of God and I wanna become a disciple of Jesus. We pursue that, we're all in, and then all of a sudden, something starts to change or happen in our life and we begin to replace the importance of coming together as a group of people and we begin to let other things of life take the priority. There's something significant about coming smaller. And I shared with you last week, and I got a couple emails this week, like, Pastor, you know, what do you mean you don't want us to get wider as a church, you want us to get deeper? Well, that's actually what it means. Let's become deeper in our faith commitment. Let's just don't fill the seats just to fill them, but let's be disciples, let's grow, and then the, the church will fill as well. And so these are some significant things for us to wrestle with. And it begs the question today, as we look at this, in such a powerful way. So Frazee's quote says that God intends the church to be not a spoke in a very busy life, so to speak, but to be the hub of the wheel of your life. And that's why small groups are so important. Last week I also shared with you, you know, what it would be like that in a group this size, if, if all of a sudden I said, who wants to come up here on this platform and confess your sins to all these people? I wouldn't have any takers. I don't know that I'd want to do it. Do you see the point? But when we do life together in 10 or 12 people, we begin to develop a relationship. We begin to develop trust. We begin to understand each other. And we begin to, to know how we can hold each other accountable. And just like in the early church, we can do that as well. In smaller groups, we can actually confess our sins. We can ask that all-important question of Wesley, how well is your soul? And know that we can answer it without condemnation. We can answer it without judgment. We can say, my soul is in a horrible place today and here's why, without fear that it's gonna wind up on Facebook or in a tweet. Do you see the significance 
of what we're learning with small groups. In John 21, we learn about a guy who was once uh, on fire with his faith, and his life was a very powerful thing. And all of a sudden, he found himself denying that he knew Jesus. It was Peter. And in John 21, we find out that there's a, uh, there's a gathering in the upper room, and, and all of a sudden, some things have transpired uh, as we get to this chapter. And we begin to see that, that uh, Jesus has appeared. Thomas, the one who uh, everybody says, well, he was the doubter. Even Thomas started believing. But Peter could not get over the fact that he had denied Jesus. And we find ourselves at a point where, where Peter does something significant. Instead of running away from that, what does he do? He calls all of his friends together, the ones he's been journeying in life with, and he brings them together at this particular point, and he says to them, uh, in essence, I need your strength, I need perseverance from you to help me to overcome this great grief that is in my heart because I have denied the Lord. And here's what it says in John 21. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, master, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So Jesus is asking a second time, yes, master, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then shepherd my sheep. And then Jesus said it a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was so upset that Jesus had asked it a third time, do you love me? So he answered right back, master, you know everything that there is to know. You're God. You know everything, and you've got to know that I love you. And what we see happen in that sense is Peter, in a small group setting, gets restored back into the favor of God. It's not something that would have happened in an assembly, but Peter, surrounded by his friends, the ones that he walked the journey of life together, who were with him, saw this happen in his life. So here's where we are. You, you can choose to do life alone, and that's a choice. You can choose to do that. I can choose to do life alone. But I hope that what we're finding out is that Scripture contradicts that. Scripture doesn't say do life alone. It talks about community, community, community. Come with one another. Be together. Surround each other with fellow believers in those small groups and make it happen. And it's when we get intimate in those moments that we begin to see the trajectory change in the relationship that we have with our loving God vertically and the relationship that we have with each other horizontally. So after this service, once again, out here to my right, your left, on the patio, uh, we're gonna have folks who are out there who are ready to answer questions about small group ministries for you. Uh, individuals who are ready and able to help 10 to 12 of you come together in a group and begin doing life together. And this is a really a great time to do it because we're coming up to our, what we call our summer Sabbath here at St. Paul. And that's where we close down our Wednesday classes and all those other activities that we do for a summer Sabbath and we ramp back up in the fall. So what a great time now to continue on with that spiritual journey, connecting with a small group. You know, I've shared with you before and I'll share one more time. Patty and I have been in a group for five years now. And most of that group has been together for the entire five years. There are several of you here in this place who have been together in a small group far longer than I have in this church. And think about how it has enriched your life. These are the people that we know we can trust and call at 2.30 in the morning when the wheels come off the bus in our life. And they will be there 
and they will love us, and they will care for us. And God wants the same for you. And I pray, I pray that you will do the same.